Welcome to Bonjour Chai, the it's the end of the year as we know it and I feel fine edition. Uh, I'm Avi Feingold here in Montreal in quarantine. Uh, we'll talk more about that in a second. Uh, and I'm here with a special guest this time around, uh, the publisher of the new CJN, Yoni Goldstein, uh, who is here with us to talk about the, the big stories of, this, of the year. Um, let's do sort of a recap of the past uh, 12 months, where we've been, where we're going. And uh, let's get our takes on what's been happening over the past year in Canada uh, and anything uh, remotely Jewish. So, uh, Yoni, thanks. Welcome to First the show. time uh, caller, longtime listener. Uh, really enjoyed the show as it's kind of grown in all sorts of ways this year, and glad to be on it. Uh, we're, we've been trying to have you on for a while, and uh, this is a perfect time to get this going, and I uh, can't wait to get this happening. So, you know. Really, the first, the, the major story with regards to uh, Canadian Jewish media is the relaunch of the CJN uh, in general. Um, tell us, uh, you know, about this. This happened at the beginning of the year. Uh, what went into going on, you know, what went into this? Uh, what was the thinking behind it? And uh, where so, it now? So uh, let's go back to April 2020 and uh, COVID, the pandemic was just hitting. Uh, and, um, you know, the CJN, like all print papers was immediately affected and a very quick decision was made to close the CJN by the board of directors of the paper at the time. And that's what happened. So, uh, myself and, uh, 20 or so other staff, maybe a little bit more, everybody was laid off. Uh, a couple of people stayed in the office to close things up, but as of April, you know, uh, mid April, we were all out of a job. And, you know, I think even in those first early days, a couple of us, you know, who were still in the office closing things up, were talking about what we might be able to do to save the CJN or restart it in a way that seemed more sustainable. But it took a while to get to that point. It it took like, it it took till really November of 2020. And that was when, uh, you know, I presented a proposal to what was still the board of directors of the CJN to kind of take it in a new direction that I thought could be sustainable over time. Most of the uh, the board accepted the proposal and then uh, the uh, majority of them resigned. So we could really have a clean slate. We have a much smaller and a uh, younger board now and we're still looking to grow in that way. But between November and the end of December of 2020, we started to put into gear the things we wanted to do. And on January 1st, we had published and um, we started. It's been kind of a wild ride. Like, and we've done, we've done a lot in a year. You know, we started at the beginning of the year posting stories on Facebook, uh, only on Facebook and in our email newsletters. Uh, and that was the first couple of months. And, you know, there, there are pitfalls um, for sure uh, in only publishing on Facebook. I think we saw some of that. And we also saw just kind of how social media has changed when people are super cooped up in their houses for months at a time. Um, but then we launched the podcast network and we came out with our first glossy magazine of the year. And uh, things really started rolling. Uh, the podcast network with Bonjour Chai and the CJN Daily and the Menschwarmers and Laura Lebo and uh, Ralph and Mergy in Chupitzville really, uh, I think, made a mark right out of the gate. People like Perker and, and Rick Bush, that's right, came along a bit later in the process. But yes, definitely. So, you know, we're getting close to like 300,000 listens since we launched the podcast network in April. That's, you know, we're getting, that's like three quarters, that's one listen for three quarters of all the Jewish people in Canada. 
And I think we're going to still grow that. I thought, you know, personally, I thought it would take uh, a bit longer to start educating people that were the CJN is now doing a lot of podcasting stuff. But um, and there still is that process to go. But I'm very pleased um, and pleasantly surprised to see how many people were willing to go on that adventure with us right from when we started, really right from the get go. And since then, we've added uh, a full website and tightened up a couple of our newsletters. We were getting ready to do four magazines in 2022. We've had our first subscription drive. And yeah, it was a busy year. And, and I think looking back on it, um, we accomplished a lot. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really remarkable when you think about it to have like a fully functional news site, a full fully full-fledged basically podcast network with many multiples with two news based um you know shows and several others that are you know doing interesting unique things i don't think there is another jewish sports podcast out there at all um you know so you know that's that's it's really cool and i'm guessing that you're um we're a lot closer to where we were probably at its peak of the uh, second waves let's say of the new cjn um you know from the 2013 era on um than we thought we would be. So which it's really kind of cool. And I think it speaks a lot to Canadian Jews' desire to like consume like stories, to, to know what, what's going on there. Yeah, I mean, people definitely, you know, people definitely met CJN when it was away. And uh, kudos to those who tried to step up um, in place. But, you know, look, like, I think, you know, running a news and media organization is not easy. It costs money. You got to pay people. You got to find advertisers. You got to be always out there searching for stories. You got to be doing it full time, really, like to do it well. And we were able to come back and do that. It's not, you know, it's not as big a staff as we had before. I hope we can grow to that level again. But, you know, I think we're the idea is to treat it more as a startup, to do things that we think personally have value, like to every podcast host and every writer and every editor, you know, it's, we, we've got to be personally invested in the stories. I think that that always makes for better journalism in all its forms. And, you know, I think like the idea really is, is it's got to be sustainable going forward. You know, when I came in in 2013, the paper had just announced it was going to close and then was magically resurrected. And we had a really good run for seven years with the, with the print magazine. You know, we, we did a lot of changes to it. We started to make some big moves um, in terms of the website, at least, you know, considering where the CJN had been. And we were even starting to get to the point of podcasts in the last year or so. So, like, you know, the the rug was kind of swept out from under us when we were, you know, we had, I think, some, some decent momentum going. Um, and now we kind of have to think about it like every single decision is, is this going to help the CJN be sustainable in the short term and in the long term? And if it's not, then we really have to consider whether it's worth our time and effort. What's uh, what's something that, what's an area, let's say, not necessarily like a story that we think that is going to blow up big or something like that, but an area within the CJN that we think uh, might uh, take off in 2022, something that you are hoping to to launch, not just another podcast or a section of the website. Is there like something branching into other places that we're thinking about to say like, hey, you know, uh, it's 2021. We're not just uh, a digital version of what we used to put out once a week. For sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think the first thing like. I, I think what I'm asking is when is Yoni Gold <laughs> on TikTok? I'm barely on like. <laughs> 
you know, anything these days. So I don't, I don't know when that's going to happen. But I, I do have some ideas. You know, the first idea, and it's like, you know, we're talking now and like it kind of seems like we're in the same place where we were this time last year, like events. You know, I want to do events. I want people to be out in public and I want you to come out and do your shows in public and meet people and, you know, and schmooze and talk and really uh, emphasize this idea that we're trying to create this space where people can feel comfortable and feel like they belong in some way. And, you know, it's great to do it through podcasts and Zoom and FaceTime and regular phone calls. But like the few times this year where I've met up with people outside, you know, or even inside testing really safely, like you notice how big a difference it makes. You know, it's like and it's not just something that the CJN can do because it'll help us grow. But like it's good for everybody. It's good for us. It's good for people if we can start gathering together again. And like it's yeah, it's okay on Zoom, but you know, it's not, it's not the same. So hopefully we get to a point at some point in 2022 when in-person events starts to become more of a thing. Uh, we're going to be doing another Zoom event um, uh, at the beginning of January with uh, Rabbi Yel Splansky interviewing Michael Ignatiev about his new book. And, you know, wow. and, and, you know, in public yet, are we hearing about this first on? Uh, there you go. Time? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> If you're, if you're, uh, you know, if you're in the CJN universe in some way or another, you'll hear about it in the coming days for sure. Um, but yeah, that would be great to just do in person. You know, it's going to be, it'll be fun to do it online. You know, we did an election debate earlier this year, right? You hosted, you co-hosted uh, an election there. debate. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I, I, I hosted one, hosted one, you know, a couple of years back and like, Again, like, you know, I think it's really, it was really exciting. The debate and the questions that you had that you that you and Ellen had were terrific. And the, you know, the post show panel really added a, a, something new to it. But imagine if we could have done that in person, you know, that 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 would. Yeah, been- look, I think I think that, um, you know, something that I spoke to uh, addressed with when I was talking to Jesse Brown on the podcast of a few weeks ago. And uh, when I said, listen, I really do believe this idea that we are building communities and we're not just, uh, you know, a content farm just to like push Jewish Canadian content out there. I think that we really are building a community of people that say to themselves, oh, the CJN is something that I want to be a part of. And events in, in that context, events make perfect sense. Um, and, you know, we had been planning to do something at the end of January that we were going to announce to do a, a live podcast event, or at least a meet the podcast host. I'm not sure where it's going to stand now because of, you know, all the, all the regulations. I don't know if bars are shut down yet officially or not in, in, in Toronto or not, and uh, when they're going to reopen. But uh, when that reopens, we'd like to, you know, meet our, you know, our listeners, and we want to create those communities and I think it's important and it's not just like you said just because events are going to be good for our bottom line I think that we have a we have a responsibility as a community to as community organizers to say hey let's find places where communities can for sure them. and and from one communal like uh looking forward you know looking forward hopefully to like more of a practical looking forward I think one other thing that I'd really like to like a nut I'd like to crack for the CJN hopefully this year and it's like something I've been trying to do and failing for eight or nine years now is to get a really like robust business section going there are a lot of Jews in Canada who are doing like amazing things in business some we hear about some of them unfortunately in their obituaries like you know we heard about Sandy Hofstetter a week ago a guy who like you know, built Toronto and built literally communities where he built those communities and Jews live in those communities. Um, there are um, people doing amazing That's things across yeah. the country. And then, you know, and then you talk about Israel also on like, 
the startup nation is so far begone now. It's like every now every Israeli company wants to be listed on stock exchanges and do their IPOs. So I think there's something there. Um, I just need to figure out how to how to get it going. Well, I have the title. For yeah, you, what by is the way. it? I think that uh, call, calling it calling it uh, real estate is the <laughs> new shmatas, a business podcast by the CJN, right? Is uh, is where it's gonna it should be moving towards because that's essentially where we've moved. As yeah, a I mean, community. I think like and, and like keeping business out of conversations, it's not really practical in a lot of ways. You know, one of the things that's changed the CJN from the past is like before I was the editor in chief, I never paid attention to the business because it was somebody else's job or five other people's jobs. And, you know, and now I'm watching every dollar we spend. Um, you know, I'm like the bills are coming right to my like literally to my door where our new uh, home uh, CJN mm -hmm. office is like uh, in that sense, looking at the bottom line and going out there and selling advertising and talking to people in the community about the value of what we're doing. Like that's also opened my mind, I think, to uh, something that was maybe closed off before where I was just like, no, I'm the editor in chief. I'm not supposed to think about business. That's somebody else's job. In a way, doing both of those things, um, you know, has really like opened my mind to parts of parts of the job that are as essential as putting out good stories and quality podcasts. Yeah, I can, uh, I can see that, and uh, I can't wait to see what that, uh, what that, how that will take shape and what that will look like. So let's move on to some of the actual stories. So I asked our producer Michael Freeman if he can give us, because he's also um, dealing with a lot of stuff in the back end um, of the website in general. If you can give us the top fifteen stories that were uh, the top fifteen most read stories on the CJN website over the past over the past year, um, and he gave them to me, and I have the headlines here, and I'm sure that we can uh, have a chance to talk about them. We we can get into them based on just the headlines alone, I'm sure. Um, and uh, let's let's just start at the bottom and work our way up to the top. So number fifteen is the many Jewish implications of Zach Hyman si signing with the Edmonton Oilers. Would this be a story if Zach Hyman wasn't young and or uh, it wasn't hockey? Meaning if Zach Hyman was a star quarterback and was going to sign with the Argonauts, would that actually have been nearly as big a story as you know, as it's been made. Yeah, I mean, may, maybe not to have a quarterback of the Argos, but I think I still think the Jewish community would have made an effort to make it a big story. But like, you know, I like the Zach Hyman story. It's like it was literally a fairy tale for so many Jewish people in Toronto and Montreal, all over Canada. Right? Like here's a kid playing for his hometown team. Uh, he had a ton of support in Toronto. Um, and going to Edmonton, like it was a bummer for me because he's my favorite Leaf for sure. Uh, but it's really been nice to see also how he's been embraced by the the Edmonton Jewish community. Uh, like he was like lighting the menorah, and uh, uh, there was something. Uh, I, you know, there his jerseys are selling it with uh, the Hebrew writing on the back now. So you know, in that sense, uh, I'm glad that uh, that uh, other Canadian Jewish communities get to share Zach Hyman. Uh, he's like a terrific hockey player and really by all indications, like a, a terrific person. You couldn't ask for a better role model for any Jewish kid who wants to get into sports in Canada right now. Huh? Well, if there's, I mean, that goes to back to my original question of like, if there is one thing that Jewish kids who are sports oriented in Canada grow up and think that they're going to do is going to make the NHL, not nearly amount the amount of same amount of people are thinking that they're going to join the CFL, not nearly the same amount of people think that they are going to become, you know, uh, champion curlers. 
Um, although that would be a cool story, like the history of Jews and curling. Yeah. Um, that might be interesting. Um, come, come Winter Olympics time. Um, but yeah, I think you're right that it's it's a great feel-good story being in the hometown. I, I don't think that they made enough of the uh, the, nah. oil, the miracle of oil around Hanukkah with Zach Hyman lighting it. I, you know, that that would have been something really interesting. A, a, a Hanukkah with eight Oilers jerseys up on it. Uh, that could have been, you know, something also. Um, maybe, maybe if they actually, you know, make it far in the playoffs, they can call that it. That would be nice. Of, of I heard the, the I think I recall the Menchwarmers, um, likening, uh, Zach Hyman's time in Toronto to Sean Green when he played for the Jays, also a very out there Jewish person. And I remember mm-hmm. at the time, you know, he was very well embraced. The Blue Jays are a couple of levels up from the Argos. Uh, they were then and certainly are now, but you know, I think, um, you know, if there's a Jewish leaf or a Jewish raptor or a Jewish, uh, I was going to say Jewish a Jewish raptor, raptor well, would really like that. I mean, we've got, your, we've got Drake is as close know. as we've, we've gotten so yeah. far, but I'm sure we'll get there. It'll, uh, yeah, it'll give it a few more years, I think, but, uh, we'll see. Um, especially a Canadian Jew to be playing for the Raptors. That yes. would really be something else. Anyways. So number 14. The anti-Semitic double standard faced by every Jewish athlete. So again, this is a sports, um, you know, related story. It's interesting to see how much um, sports does play a role in Canadian Jewish news. Um, not the, not the capital, but uh, lower, even all those words should be capitalized. Anyways, um, but yeah, that that even a place where um, one would assume that sportsmanship and uh, camaraderie would be good, that there is a double standard of anti-Semitism um, that faces Jews, you know, on sports leagues, both amateur and professional. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think like, you know, we've heard a bunch of stories this year about that, about that already being true. Um, but, you know, you're, you make a really good point, like sports should be the place where, you know, people learn about fairness and how to trust each other. Um, you know, that we ran an excerpt from a new book by uh, Bruce Kidd, the, the famous Canadian athlete, who's also a professor at U of T now. Uh, and the excerpt talks about how he learned about anti-Semitism, you know, um, uh, when he was uh, you know, when he was training as an athlete down on the beaches in Toronto. And, you know, people would make fun of the fat, pudgy Jewish kids who were out at the beach. And I, I have to go back and read the excerpt, but like either his father or his coach came over and was like, nobody makes fun of those kids. You have no idea what they went through and what, you know, and, and, and what food means to them differently than, than how it means to you. So I guess the lesson, you know, that we all know is like you can find anti-Semitism and you can find lessons about life anywhere. Um, one of the things that I think we learned this year is that those lessons and stories do resonate for a lot of people when they've got a sports angle to them. And like, um, you know, I think we're finding more and more of those stories and talking to Zach Hyman and the Mensch Warmers, uh, you know, both really good examples of like leaning into sports. Sports has been one of the only things that people can like still do and be entertained by. So, you know, why not enjoy it? Interesting, for sure. So number 13, Toronto District School Board apologizes for the harm caused by talk um, from activist Desmond Cole. So this is not the first... Uh, TDSB story uh, that we are going to have in this list. Um, for, what do you make of Desmond Cole in general before we get to the the, the talk that he made? Or I mean, or I don't know Desmond Cole at all. Uh, I make a what? what well, okay. I, I don't either personally. I, yeah. I've read his work. I mean, I'd so, say but, I think yeah. he's a very passionate activist for causes he believes in, and you know, there's a there's 
it, you know, probably more now than ever, like there's a clear division between activism and politics. And, um, you know, sometimes activism has, has the opposite effect of what people are trying to do. But then again, you know, if you, if you'd ask Desmond, maybe he'd say, you know, raising awareness about, you know, raising awareness and being able to say a couple of words at a meeting of, uh, Toronto area teachers, like that's a step in the right direction for him. I don't think this is the kind of activism and this will come up again in our list, but like, I, you know, I don't think that's the kind of activism that belongs in our schools. There seem to be some double standards at play. And I say this as a parent of two TDSB children, um, this issue is not going away soon. Yeah. I, it's interesting because I don't think he's a, you know, an unintelligent individual. I think that he is quite smart. I think that his arguments when he's making arguments, um, about race, about, um, the Canadian, uh, community that we live in, he, he says a lot of very strong points. I'm, I'm inclined to align myself with a lot of the stuff that he says. And then he just, and this I think is a mistake that so many intelligent activists do feel like, as you said, that there is no line to be drawn anywhere. Um, and look, again, to be fair, uh, we are probably the recipient of that only 15, 75 years ago, right? If we didn't think right. that we said, you know, well, there's a place to discuss things and there's a place not to discuss things, then we wouldn't have a state of Israel because of activists that were willing to talk everywhere about whatever the cause might be. So in that sense, I don't think that it's what he's doing is wrong. I just think that so many of the, of the moments when um, activists in general are choosing to to speak out are not often the most the wisest times to actually say stuff, and and this was just an example of that. If you ask me, it, like it was a case of somebody not necessarily seeing their audience or knowing when uh, what is the right moment to say something or not. And uh, I, I'm without even getting into what the content of the argument itself was. Um, but then again, like I said, we sometimes uh, fall victim to that as well. Uh, how many times have we had seen Jewish organizations cry anti-Semitism when something is so minor, right, to the point that when we do have major anti-Semitism, right, it becomes like a whatever, right? Yeah. Whatever you're going to tell me right now, right? I, I always like to point to the fact that like B'nabrith, when, when, when somebody scrawls a swastika in the snow, right, on a car, B'nabrith is all over that. And, and it's really just a 12-year-old who's being, you know, stupid. And when you end up with a major rash of anti-Semitism, people are like, I don't know, well, is that one different from the other? And, and that's what it's about. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, and, and there are direct, um, you know, there are direct results of, of like that sort of phenomenon you're describing, like in the way we cover stories now, you know, in the CJN, when it was a print paper, we had pages to fill every week. And so, you know, uh, an anti-Semitism story of somebody scrolling a swastika in the snow that might have been in the paper. I don't know that that it you know that it makes it into its own story uh, in the new CJ. And it, you know maybe it's part of a roundup. Maybe it's something Ellen mentions. Maybe it becomes part of a larger trend. Um, but reacting to each and every one of uh, you know what might be described as minor issues, yeah, I think you gotta you gotta think about how you react to everything because. Everything that you say and you do, and, and it's the same for us as it is for Desmond Cole, like everything counts, you know, everything you say matters. And uh, you only get so many opportunities to say it before people start tuning you out. I think it's a really interesting point, by the way, that 
people might not be thinking about or be conscious of. But once you're saying this, I think that it's important to bring it to the front of people's minds. Um, you know, it used to be that when you had a story in the CJN print publication, it was, you know, potentially something which was just a page filler because you had to put out X number of pages with X number of advertisements. And now if a story goes out, it's because we actually deem that the story is important. Yeah, exactly. And, and and that it's not something that are like, yeah, I guess we have to cover that or something, you know, we need to fill a certain amount of pixels. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, we don't, it's actually, it, there's value to that. And there's value to thinking about that. You no, know, so, I think you know, we worry sometimes like uh, in, in our Slack channels, like when we, when we take that sort of philosophy, are we going to like have enough stuff to fill our website or, you know, put out a new newsletter in two days? And we always do. So like, uh, yeah. yeah. But let's we're going to keep doing we're going to keep going at things that way. And like, you know, every organization, major and minor, has a website now, has a, some sort of communication staff, has social media like nobody's saying they can't put out their own stories, too. And when you know, when it's a story for us, then we'll we'll do that as well. Absolutely. All right. Number 12. Joseph Leibovic transformed Toronto as a real estate developer and philanthropist. I do believe that that is the only um, obituary of sorts, uh, memorial um, discussion of sorts um, on there. Uh, what made Joseph Leibovic so important um, that I think enough people clicked on it to make it? Well, I mean, he and he and his brother are, are you know, were, were well known for also building significant parts of the Jewish community in Toronto, uh, certainly in the northern parts of it. Um, including a, a, a JCC branch. Um, and like I was saying earlier about Sandy Hofstetter, like there's a generation of people who came to Canada uh, with very little and in, you know, in a remarkably short period of time um, made large fortunes and, and then gave significant parts of those fortunes back to the Jewish community. Uh, in all sorts of ways, like and 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 walking through any parts of the Jewish community in Toronto, like you're gonna see, you're gonna see the the, the Lubavitch name there, right? Like, um, I don't, you know, and the interesting thing is like, and you had you had another Sandy Hofstetter, as I was mentioning earlier, you had one of his grandchildren on your show talking about real estate a couple of months ago, so it's interesting how you know how family businesses. Um, especially in real estate, I think, you know, perhaps more than others, maybe that's just the way I, me noticing it, but like the way these family, the way families pass down businesses from generation to generation, how they grow their family, their family trees and their business family trees sort of simultaneously. It's kind of fascinating. Uh, and the reality is that without people like this, who have taken risks and reaped great rewards and then given back to you know, to, to where they came from, like our Jewish communities wouldn't be flourishing the way they are. For sure. I, uh, I'm always thought brought back to the, uh, the image from uh, Monty Python and the meaning of life where, uh, the guy says, my father left, I came into the country with only a small piece of land. Right. And then he pulls out a, you know, a chunk, a clot of <laughs> dirt from his jacket. I came with a piece of land and I was able to make it into something. And that's what I think about these, these families that came. They started with no, next to nothing. Yeah. All I had when I moved to Canada was six blocks of prime real estate along Young. And I managed. Yeah. No, they really started. No, they were nothing. hustlers. Like uh, they, were they were. Yeah, absolutely. Three, three jobs a time working in sweatshops. Yeah. 
Yeah, but but, but when I, what I what I spoke about before is really interesting because it used to be that manufacturing and goods was the thing that Jews yeah. got into, and now they realize that uh, that land is is the most scarce resource, and uh, let's let's figure out a way to to do something with it, and that's where that's where the Jews have been concentrating so much of their energies. So uh, yeah, all right, um, number eleven. York University Student Union had a pro-BDS group to talk to them about anti-Semitism. <laughs> Which pro-BDS group was it? <laughs> um, I don't remember, but uh, <laughs> I think that the title alone is yeah, just funny. Yeah, <laughs> I, I assume if it was in Canada, it's independent Jewish voices. I think that I recall that being the story. Like, yeah. that that story should be like a Purim spiel um, rather than a real story. Uh, this kind of happens in the States also, where you have groups like Jewish Voice for Peace, uh, doing stuff on campus. I, I think, I, here's what I think. Whatever you think about organizations like that, it is pretty clear to me that they don't represent a significant um, cohort in the Jewish community, maybe more younger people than older people. Yet. And yet yes. they're being yeah. brought out as sort of like the good Jews. This is all, also an issue in, like I was saying, in the States where some some organization just came out with a list of good Jewish organizations and bad Jewish organizations. And the good ones are like Jewish Voice for Peace, Jewish Voice for Palestine, and If Not Now, and everybody else is a bad Jew. So it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Not even yeah, J Street. Yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting because... Um, you know, and, and there's something that isn't listed in this headline that, you know, and I'm not going to, you know, critique the, the headline itself or the writer of the headline. Um, but to go and say that um, that a pro-BDS group to talk to them about anti-Semitism, one could think that it might be, you know, it would be really preposterous if it was the SPHR. Uh-huh. Right, this all letter for Palestinian human rights or Hamas came. They're they're pro BDS. They're going to come talk about anti-Semitism, and it's very different to be able to say that versus to be able to say no, no, no. These are Jews, and Jews have, you know, quite, you know, they have a right, and they have just as much a voice to be able to speak about anti-Semitism. Because I assure you that IJV individuals are subject to anti-Semitism just as much. For sure. Um, and so sure. to delegitimize them to say that you don't have the right to talk to Jews about anti-Semitism, you know, can be a problem, you know, in I some think, way or I another. Think... And and so th- I think that this story requires a little more nuance than ju- than just saying, well, because you're a lefty Jew, you know, you don't you don't speak for us anymore. And, and you shouldn't talk about anti-Semitism to to, to on campus groups. Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, uh, Independent Jewish Voices has a large section on its website discussing anti-Semitism. They seem to take it seriously in their own way. Uh, clearly, they have different definitions of anti-Semitism than some other people, but that that's fine. They can talk about anti-Semitism. They can talk about whatever they want. I think um, for them to be sort of like the exclusive purveyor of anti-Semitism education, uh, at, at York University or any university, really, or any in any place, like that's not a good idea. We don't put on. Yeah, but then the the argument then would be that neither would B'nai B'rith be the only should be the only speakers about anti-Semitism yeah, I agree as well. With that. I agree with that. Yeah, there's there's no re- there's no reason why uh, you know if you're gonna have a talk about anti-Semitism, like it would be boring if it was just one person or one group up there telling you about about, about their view on anti-Semitism and what is and what isn't. The value would be in having a whole bunch of groups and, uh, you know, trying to figure it out. But, you know, then then I think on the flip side of this argument, and we've talked a lot about this internally this year, is like this issue of defining anti-Semitism 
um, and whether and the danger within that effort of letting anti-Semitism come to define us. And I, I think that is a big issue of people trotting around the Jerusalem Declaration and IHRA. Like, are we ever going to really get a full definition that, you know, even most of us can agree with? And if and if the answer is no, then why are we wasting time doing it? Yeah, I, uh, I have a colleague who likes to point out that um, anybody who's sole Jewish identity is defined by anti-Semitism has a lot of um, Jewish thinking yeah, to think about. Sure. Um, but that's a different discussion uh, for a different time. Um, all right. So number 10, and uh, maybe you can tell us a bit about this because I don't think many people outside of Toronto uh, know about this. Uh, but number 10 was City of Toronto to memorialize Phillips Garment Factory fire. Yeah. Um, so this is like the kind of story that like um uh jewish archive jewish archivists and archival organizations kind of live for um there's this intent there's like a really intense history like we were talking a few minutes ago about jews kind of working downtown and uh you know in unsafe conditions conditions that would have been deemed unsafe then and certainly would be now um, and you know, the fire was one of those cases where Jews just kind of trying to immigrant Jews trying to get, um, trying to get a step ahead being, you know, working in kind of conditions that are deplorable and, and losing their lives for it. And, you know, it's a story that you'd, you'd expect to hear in other parts of the world, like, uh, you know, any day, the fact that it happened here, you know, in, in 60 years ago is, is pretty wild. Yeah, for sure. Um, 70 years ago. Um, yeah. And uh, there are other cities with other stories like this, but I guess Toronto has a big population and uh, it, it's interesting to see that, you know, that they went out for this. Uh, number nine, after an anti-Semitic attack in Toronto, Sam Brody says he's hiding his Jewish identity. Um, and then he says that he's hiding his Jewish identity in a headline in the Canadian Jewish News, and it becomes one of the top tens. So who is Sam Brody? And uh, tell us a little bit about this story. Sam Brody is like a, I don't know him personally, but uh, seems like a nice young Jewish boy, uh, I would guess somewhere in his 20s. And he was out walking his dog, I think, if I remember correctly, uh, around Young and, young and Eglinton in Toronto. Um, an area I know well, cause my dad used to work around there and I'd go and hang out at the used, uh, CD and vinyl stores after school and catch a ride home with him. Um, if he was out there and, and some guy started walking towards him, shoved him down, uh, you know, said some terrible stuff to him. And like, I talked to him a little bit after that happened and, um, uh, he was clearly shaken up, like. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure I would have been in the same situation. And I think, you know, his uh, covering up his Judaism uh, from the headline, I think he said he was going to wear a hat on top of his kippah now on, from now on uh, when he goes out. And uh, as somebody who does the same and has really pretty much done that since somebody said, made some fun of me about a kippah on the TTC when I was like eight or nine years old, um, you know, I, 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 it's sad, but it's probably a good move. It's probably a good move. It's interesting. You know, I, um, my wife and I always dis have an interesting discussion because we're both members of the clergy and uh, people will always stop me and ask me, excuse me, are you a rabbi? Because they assume that the only people that they wear keep us on the street are rabbis, but they never ask her that because she gets to, you know, 
pass. Right. She gets to, to go incognito because um, most people aren't necessarily reading skirt lengths and, you know, hair coverings and stuff like that in terms of religious. Um, and I've never been shy about, you know, showing my kippa in public, but that's partially because I'm a professional Jew. Um, but I can tell you that, you know, when you're at a bar, uh, I've, I've never been the victim of any sort of, you know, anti-Semitic attack or any sort of violence. Actually, that's not true. I once, this is a crazy story. I, I don't think I've ever really spoken about this except to a few people because it was just so bizarre and was even crazy. I was killing time in Long Island City in Queens, New York, um, because I had gone to see MoMA when it was at PS1 at the time. And uh, I was waiting for dinner for a friend, but I had a couple hours and I found this random Irish pub that was like a real hardcore Irish pub. And I went in, I ordered a Guinness, and within about 10 minutes or so, the other two or three people um, that were at the bar, and you can tell because it was three in the afternoon and these were, uh, you know, real professional people, dedicated picklers of their their livers. um, I started hearing pennies being yeah. thrown like against the back wall and I had n- I didn't even understand what it meant and it took a while for it to like click in um, but I, I was more bemused than like actually offended in any real way but I've never really other than that but uh, essentially what, what I'm trying to get at and I don't fault anybody for you know covering wearing a kippah or not um, I wear hats because I love hats um, but when I take them off my kippah is always there but it starts being like more like people would just come up to you and feel like they have the right to ask you like some random Jewish thing that they that has bothered them. And, and again, this is in no way, you know, the absolute same equivalence. But I, th- I feel like in some small way, like having a keep out and people just randomly coming up to ask you is the equivalent of like people coming up to black women and asking them if they can touch their hair. Yeah, it- Right. It just it gives you the right to ask anything or to yeah. do anything. And like, yeah, Jewish stuff. I'm going to just talk to you about random Jewish stuff. And on airplanes, it becomes. And it's funny and because like anybody who wears yeah. a keep, like there's there's such like even within people who wear kippahs, there's so many different you know ways of wearing a kippah, size, color or style, like where you wear it on your head. But yeah. like outside of people wearing world, none of that really makes any difference. Yeah, it's just yeah. keeper or not for sure. All right. Um, number eight, two arrests made following rally at Toronto's Nathan Phillips Square. What was the rally and uh, what were the arrests and uh, what was the story? Yeah, this was a really interesting story. Um, so there was a pro-Palestinian rally at Nathan Phillips Square, which is City Hall at City Hall in Toronto, where the big skating rink is. Uh, there were some counter protesters there. Uh, it wasn't entirely clear if they were all organized by the Jewish Defense League or some of them were from the Jewish Defense League. Some of them were from other grassroots groups or just showed up themselves. And, um, you know, and there was, there's some graphic, uh, video that came out of it of, uh, uh, um, of at least one man uh, with an Israeli flag getting in fights with a a couple of pro-Palestinian people. I don't think anybody got hurt too, too bad. I'm not even sure if anybody went to the hospital, but there were cuts and bruises and and charges laid after it. I think the debate, the debate within the Jewish community and to, you know, to an extent uh, within the pro-Palestinian community coming out of that, out of this story was like, you know, to what extent the uh, the Jewish um, counter protesters were at fault for for starting things, and uh, you know I, I don't think anybody really found any conclusive evidence one way or the other. You could look at one person's cell phone camera and it looked this way, or another person's cell phone camera that looked a different way. 
Um, the authorities got involved and, and they did what they did. But, I, you know, I think like the idea that people are that, that pro-Palestinian and pro-Israeli supporters and activists are fighting each other with their fists on the streets of downtown Toronto, like uh, that's pretty wild. That's a pretty wild story. And like uh, I live right by Christie Pitts, like it, it happened. It happened around here, but like to uh, a while ago, but like not something that you'd expect to really see in 2021. Yeah, to me, the uh, the main takeaway from the story for, for, you know, in terms of like thinking about it long term is how much uh, the word defense actually belongs in the Jewish Defense League. And that at the end of the day, like really, who are these people and why do they think that offense is actually defense? And uh, maybe Zach Hyman can teach them a little bit about, you know, what good defense. Well, I mean, is. look, here, like, here's the thing, right? Like, I think we would both agree whether 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 we think it's deserved or not. There are segments of the Jewish community in Canada that are scared. Whether you know the you know we might think of those threats differently, but when you try to figure out you know what the Jewish Defense League is, what does defense mean? Part of figuring that out is like why is there why do people feel that there's a need for a JDL, right? Like, and if you and if we could figure out why people feel that need perhaps we could address that need in a form other than a jdl which you know most people see as well, as i mean as as wild I, I happen to think that the reason why people think that there's a need for a jdl is because you have you know jews with unresolved anger issues that feel the need to like you know defend channel it into like the Jewish community. And as a member of the Jewish community, I, I'm really happy to say yeah. thanks, but no thanks. Like you can go take you go to an axe throwing room and like, you know, deal with it that way and come back and just chill. Well, Mayor Weinstein left the Jewish Defense League this year. So um, I don't even know if they're still going. Wait, the mayor of Toronto was oh, oh yeah, Mayor Weinstein. Weinstein. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> we might get there one day to admit to Mayor Weinstein. We've had we've had Rob Ford. Yeah, we had Mayor. Uh, well, we had Mayor Applebaum for a little while in Montreal, although that didn't end too well for the Jews either. Um, yeah. Anyways, so um, number seven, Beth Tikva and Beth David light gets shed on a merger of two Toronto synagogues. So this is a story that is far from over, and I happen to know you know a little bit of stuff from there because of the the rabbi world. Uh, I'm not going to share anything that isn't already known in the world. But uh, uh, why are people fascinated by synagogue? Yeah, I think one one thing is like people have a lot of people haven't been to synagogue. I think a lot of the people who would go to those synagogues probably haven't been to synagogue very much in the last the last year. Yeah, but I mean. I think yeah, I think synagogue for sure. Politics and, like, and if you want proof that favorite. synagogue politics are always popular, you know, like the fact that nobody's even been there for a year and then we're still talking about it. But the serious part is like, um, what are schools going to do, right? And not just in Toronto, you've got, but in Toronto, you've got a whole bunch of really big schools with really big properties around them, and nobody in them, um, and uh, people, you know, might not be able to pay their dues the way they the way they used to be able to synagogues have to sometimes lay off some of their staff. Um, you know, once one of the big synagogues in Toronto has just finished a massive renovation, right? Like, these are not these are tough times for synagogues for sure in Toronto. Um, and if they're not all thinking about mergers or some other way to get creative, then uh, now's the time because 
uh, I can tell you that you know a lot of synagogues are thinking that way. We we had a story later in the year about um, you know using using some of that land, like the massive parking lots, for example, that a lot of synagogues have. Like well, those are good places for housing. People are starting to realize, uh, and maybe that's a future for synagogues. You could have you could have your you could have your synagogue on the main floor of the condo building that used to that you know that's replaced the massive synagogue. Um, so I think this stuff is changing. People also seem to be okay with dubbing on Zoom. I spent the summer dubbing outside in a park, and it was amazing. Um, so Shul's really got to think about about what they're doing right now, and mergers is one way to do it, especially when you have older um, older communities and memberships. Yeah, but let's be honest. And I I'm a fan of both of those synagogues, and I love both. I have happen to have personal ties to both congregations in some way or another. This is a last gasp effort. I mean, in five, 10 years, it's not going to matter that they merged in some way or another. They're just kicking the can down the curb just a little while longer. Yeah, I think, I, I think, I think there's, yeah, I think, you know, like I said, there's going to have to be some really radical thinking if it, if it's going to be something other than the end game you're, you're proposing. Like they're going to have to think really radically and they probably won't. I feel like I'm giving it away, but we should turn this into an entire episode of Moshe High. Like I've always had this idea that, you know, and I mentioned this when I knew of a synagogue in Montreal that was closing and they ended up merging with another congregation. I said, why are you doing this? Why don't you take your building, sell it, take all that money and turn it into a foundation that will give out um, not micro grants, but like real full size grants to organizations that are going to promise to start up new Jewish stuff in Montreal um, that fit into your vision of what Judaism, in this case, what egalitarian Judaism could or should look like. And even if you have the um, enough to give out 50 grants, and even if you have an 80% fail rate, right, you've still created a half a dozen or more new Jewish organizations that are able to like revitalize the, the community. And we're not thinking along these lines. And we just, I feel like there's a, such a tremendous failure in leadership in terms of thinking creatively towards solutions and sort of saying, you know, why isn't Federation going to these, these synagogues and saying, don't merge? Whichever one of you is weaker should fail. Like, just do it, right? Take all that assets and let's do something really cool with it and not just perpetuate what we've always been doing which is merge synagogues together. Let you know. You know. Let let's pretend that nothing else, let nothing wrong is happening. And I don't know. I just feel like there's a yeah, problem. Yeah, I mean, the problem has been exacerbated by by the pandemic. And I don't think Jewish organizations like the like the federations, for example, like they're dealing with a whole bunch of stuff now. I don't. I don't know that shuls are where nobody's at. Anyways, I don't. You know, I don't think that shuls where nobody's hanging out anyways right now is at the top of their list. But yeah, you're right. You know, the, the, the trend of like, uh, congregations coming together, like that's not something new. It's been, it's been happening for decades. And, uh, unless somebody stands up and says, we got to rethink this, it's just going to keep happening until there's literally one synagogue left that has ever this, that, and the other. Well, no, the problem is, is that there are young, cool Jewish things that are happening. They're just opting out of this entire system entirely. And unfortunately, they're the ones that are dealing with problems with fundraising, because think about how many organizations are sucking up. There's a term for this, even. I don't know if you ever heard this term, the Methuselah problem, where, where you have a lot of older organizations that really, if they go away, would free up a lot of 
um, you know, philanthropy dollars towards young startups. And unfortunately, they're just doing barely enough to warrant maintaining their philanthropy dollars. And they're sucking up a lot of old school dollars. And, And the young Jewish startups are basically saying, we don't have anything to work with because this organization is sort of doing something good. But if they went away, you know, we'd be able to do so much more with whatever it is that they're doing. But, you know, why would you tell an organization that is still raking in dollars, stop raking in those dollars. It's hard for them. And it's difficult. Like, I don't know. I think it's an intractable problem. And we have to take some hard looks at what we do as a Jewish community before um, we do yeah, more. Yeah, before it's mergers. too late. I mean, uh, and I'd look forward uh, to hearing an episode of Pon Shurchai about that for sure. Absolutely. Number six, Mark Heapshur on why Lou Marsh's name must be removed from Canada's top athletic award right, right now. All right, so this, so this is the CJN cancels Lou Marsh. Um, <laughs> as much as we, you know, we try and stay out of that sort of realm of uh, thinking and acting these days, uh, Mark uh, is a longtime sportscaster and known pretty well for his time at Global, kind of like revolutionized the way... Uh, you know, the way sports were told, the stories of sports were told um, on TV in Canada. And um, he was talking to our managing editor, Mark Weisblatt, about about Lou Marsh, who uh, uh, has this trophy named after him for Outstanding Canadian Athlete. Uh, Marsh was a uh, journalist at the Star, uh, sports journalist at the Star. The award was named after him, I think, when he retired, not when he died, but maybe when he died. And it turns out, like so many people from like 50 or 60 or 40 or 30 or even sometimes five years ago, like he said some bad things. He was racist. He was uh, misogynist. Just not a nice person all around by most accounts. And um, 2021 seemed to be the year when Canadian sports journalists sort of, or some at least, took it upon themselves to call out. Uh, Lou Marsh and the committee who uh, gives out the award. Uh, uh, Mark Hepsher wasn't the only one. There were some pretty big names from the TSN and Sportsnet realms as well. And like, you know, I, I think I have mixed feelings about the, the idea of, uh, of changing uh, names of things or awards or titles based on behaviors that we, um, that we sort of uh, discover later on and, you know, measuring, measuring uh, morality as we understand it today versus the way it was understood um, at some other time. But like, you know, here's a guy who uh, was a foul person um, and uh, was not particularly fond of Jewish people. And uh, here's a good chance for some, for somebody like Mark, who's, got the voice and has the and has the chops to really get people behind him and uh, he said what he had to say and I think the results are out there he's what did you say that was number six or number five anywhere somewhere in the top 10 for the year there that you was go. number so six we're about to hit the number five definitely but... resonated with people yeah so I, I actually think the antidote to this story and I don't think it's happened yet and I think that the mentors should get on this um, to look at the history and to see where the potential uh, for this might happen. Um, but I'm waiting to see for the first Jewish recipient of the heart Ooh. trophy, because then you have a getting Jew a getting a trophy named yeah. after a Jew. Yeah. Um, I feel like there's something there. We got Zach Hyman. on this. Zach, well, does he qualify for a heart trophy? I guess. Yeah, I guess so. 
Um, all right, top five. And this was a story I think that we broke. I don't think anybody else broke this story. Um, the secret rescue of the Afghanistan women's cycling team helped by Canadian. Yeah, Jason so Lee. this is a Sylvan Adams uh, story uh, from your neck of the woods. A massive. He grew up across the street from where I live. Massive right now. philanthropist. He's uh, he's everywhere. And, um, you know, uh, it's crazy, like how like uh the end of the Afghanistan mission, like, has kind of exited our brains. But, like, I don't know, uh, like, two months ago, it was all we were thinking about. And were we going to be able to get people out of the country, people who helped Canadians, who helped Americans? Um, and a lot of those people, you know, shamefully got left behind. Uh, thankfully, you've got somebody like Sylvan Adams who was able to to save a few people. There's also there's also the story of the <laughs> the last the last Jewish person in Afghanistan, and I'm not sure oh, yeah. this might have tied into the story where he was like, "No, I'm staying here," and they were like, "Okay, fine, then we'll rescue the cycling team." But then I think they found another last Jew in I Afghanistan. I thought it had to do with the fact that like his wife was in Israel and that if he had to go to Israel, then he'd have to give his wife oh. a get and he hated her. Like there was some more like it was more like divorce drama than it was like, I'm happy. I remember here. seeing pictures of the guy like, like it was just, I'm less miserable in Afghanistan than I am in Israel with my like, you know, not yeah, quite that's, divorced that's wife. Saying so. Like that's a Jewish story <laughs> if I've ever heard one. Well, um, they're, they're another, yeah, another good very example of like, you know, Canadian Jews just like doing good stuff we do good stuff and we don't just do it for jews and like uh you know and i think yeah. you know there's always people when when you hear a story about this or you hear a story about like jewish support for the uyghurs in china right like you know there i think they're they're you know maybe it's understandable why some people like read you know arch an eyebrow like really jews are getting involved in this but like yeah jews are getting involved in this because this stuff is actually important to us yeah because non-jews got involved when you know, we were in trouble, and uh, there are many Jews that remember this, and many Jews Absolutely. that didn't. And, uh, stay tuned for more on that when we uh, cover the Uyghur story during the Olympics, of course. Um, number four, Toronto School Board trustee Alexander Lolka criticized for calling out anti-Semitic so, teaching resources. This was also another uh, pretty wild story, and, and actually fairly recent. And I remember... Um, listening to the trustee meeting uh while i was taking my evening walk the night it was happening and it was it was a really close vote about whether to censure this jewish um toronto district school board trustee for making comments on social media about um pro-palestinian um information that was passed out by another person at the tdsb but that included like literally anti-semitic stuff Yes, yeah, so, so there's nothing wrong. To be fair, at least in my mind, there's nothing wrong with pro-Palestinian information. It's when it moves to be violent that becomes right. A exactly, and yeah. this was stuff like yeah, yeah, and like this was stuff that crossed the line. Um, and I, you know, I don't know Alexandra Lilka well, but I, I think I know her reputation well enough to know that she would not be a person, um, you know, uh, going after this if if there wasn't a really clear issue here. And, you know, listening to that meeting, it was like it was kind of harrowing, especially as it got down to the uh, to the vote, which I think ended up like 10-7, not to censure Lolka and to ultimately throw out the report that suggested to censure her in the first place. Um, this is like the continuation of a story that's that started at the beginning of the year with the, those pro-Palestinian 
um, email blast that cont that contained a whole bunch of really problematic stuff. I don't think it's going to change. I think the TDSP has now found itself caught in the middle between two um, warring factions. I think the last meeting really set out that agenda and showed um, how uncomfortable it is. And here we see again politics intruding into um, into another realm where you know where where its benefits are somewhat suspect, and that's education. Uh, can we teach kids about uh, being pro-Palestinian? Sure, we, we, we should teach them about that. Uh, we should teach kids about current events, and we should teach them about uh, being pro-Israel and being um, allies to Jews as well. I think it's clear that that didn't happen in this case, which doesn't make it unique. What makes it unique is that uh, the person who decided to stand up and say, hey, something's not right, um, got dragged through the mud, and while they were ultimately vindicated, spent you know weeks and months fighting fighting what was would have would have been a, a massive stain on their public mm -hmm. record. Yeah, it's interesting when we compare and contrast it to what we were talking about with Desmond Cole earlier. And you know, I was sitting there and saying like, it's easy for me to go and say now, well, this was warranted and that wasn't warranted. Um, but but it highlights, I think, the difficulty when one is trying to be a journalist, but also trying to be partisan and trying to maintain the balance between the two. And this is a great highlight of what that means for Canadian Jewish media to be able to say, well, this is clearly a problem. Um, and yet what, you know, what is it about Desmond Cole that made it so different? Um, and that that's the highlight of what we need to, to be thinking about when we're dealing with um, covering these types of stories. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like this story was kind of harrowing in, in its in its own way and it, it really did kind of creep up it crept, crept into the public really out of nowhere this stuff had been happening behind closed doors for a time um but then it kind of crept up, crept into the public and there were thousands of people on that on that tdsb trustee meeting listening uh listening to find out what was going to happen to lolka and i'm sure the i'm sure the board um felt uh felt the pressure of that for sure. All right. Number three, and this one is totally out of left field, but maybe you can help us um, think about this as a publisher of uh, media, um, as a journalist. And uh, number three is just the science of successful baking. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's baking. This, I think that was a story from probably earlier in the year when baking was like still kind of cool. Sure. Uh, are people still? Yeah, but I think that just cooking stories yeah. in general are are huge. Yeah, I, people. Uh, you know, if if we uh, figured out this year that uh, Jewish people love to talk about sports, and if we're hoping to figure out uh, that Jewish people love talking about business in 2022, then something we've known for sure before that is Jews love to talk about food, um, and especially when there isn't a heck of a lot else to do, and you get sick of ordering Uber Eats. Um, even I found myself looking for some new recipes this year. Abs yeah, for sure. And this highlights the uh, desire that I've always had, whether if it's for a live event or in its own segment, um, to do a, an entire segment or a separate podcast or monthly live events called Canadian Jewish Oh, Blues. that's such a good name. I've loved that name forever. And yes, that it's It's all fermented grain, right? Baking, alcohol... Like, and I, I believe there is also another uh, legal intoxicant in Canada now. 
um, there is, and uh, that should be the uh, subject of uh, of an entire episode itself. Um, it just doesn't rhyme with Canadian Jewish news. Uh, <laughs> what, 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 how do we get kosher, that? Kosher kush. There you go. Maybe. I, I, I like to call it but the, the clouds of glory, right? The Ananeha the Ananeha Kabul, right? <laughs> Or if you uh, nice. if you're ever nice. if within NCSY at some point in your life, I, I'd like to make a strain call it uh, pre Shabbos. <laughs> nice, yeah. I mean, like a, a, a CJN strain would be some would be a nice accomplishment. I, I know other places do beers or whatever, but like, come on, it's twenty. It's almost twenty twenty two. I think a CJN strain would be uh, very. Um, very much in, on brand for the the new CJN, and uh, we should we should figure that out. Anyways, number two, London imams' inflammatory remarks at vigil link Israel to local killings. So this was a very big story um, in and of itself, um, where the Jewish community really got behind um, what happened in the story until this incident happened, and then uh, we get to. Our so this is story. like um, this is like encapsulates like. Uh, the issue for a lot of people engaged in Jewish Muslim dialogue, right? Like got a lot of really, really well-meaning people who do a lot of work. A lot of it is in the background and it's not just Jews or Muslim people doing the exact same work. And I I've seen it personally and I've seen it up close and it's really cool when it does work. Uh, and then you have things like this happen. Um, and it's just like, it's so frustrating because you know, it just it just does away so much of that good work, and uh, like you feel like, uh, and I and I'm not like hugely involved in this, but even I feel like when when you hear a story like this, well, like we're back, you know, we just took five steps backwards, and like we've been spending years now talking about in the Jewish community, you know, talking about Islamophobia. It's made its way. It's made its way to Canada from the states, where I think uh, the American Jewish community is talking about that a lot. But the conversations that are happening here also, and they're really fruitful, and I've been involved in some of them, I've moderated other ones. Um, there's a lot to be learned there. There's a lot to be learned from the, from, uh, from the Muslim community, and there's a lot from the Muslim, for the Muslim community to learn from the Jewish community, uh, especially in the way it's organized and the way it supports itself. Um, there's really a lot of good work to be done, and like, unfortunately, you're still going to have incidents like this that will set things back that will make people more uh, weary. But I think, like, and I've seen it, there are enough people and, and organizations even dedicated to, really dedicated to, to doing this interfaith work with Christians also. Um, you just got to hope that, like, the bad apples don't, you know, don't push the masses away from, from being open to, to those ideas. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember hearing the story when, when it was happening, and before it had been digested by a lot of people. And I was like, on the one hand, I was like, I kind of get what this guy is saying. I mean, disagree with him, but I see where he's coming from. And the other half of me was also still like having a hard time with this, but still saying, hey, how many times does this happen within the Jewish community? And yet we go and say, oh, no, no, this is just like an extremist. We don't really count this person, you know, you know, what was, I'm going to just call it out and say, well, how many times do we have to answer for uh, the Jewish Defense League? And we say, well, they're not really answering. We don't re they don't really speak for us. And yet we still have to, you know, answer for it. And that's what's happening in this situation. And 
unfortunately, I was hoping that it wasn't going to derail so much in terms of Jewish-Muslim dialogue, and yet it often does. And in this case, I feel like it did to a certain extent. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and, and for, and and for that sure. that's a problem. But, but you know, within the Jewish community, we, we, we have such a hard time trying to make that bifurcation by saying, well, when it comes to us, you know, when some extremist goes and says something, well, that's not really who we respond to. That's not really who we rep- who represents us. None of that is really real. And yet when it happens within the Islamic community, you have like multiple Jewish organizations that are sitting there waiting to like call you on it and to say, hey, that is bad. You can't do that. If you keep doing that, we are going to separate ourselves from you. And this is why you, you know, we can't really have Jewish Muslim dialogue and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, look, I I think the responsibility for calling out the bigots and the, you know, and the nuts in your own community, in either community falls to that community, right? Like it's, it falls to Jews to say when when somebody Jewish does something wrong, and it falls to Muslims to say when somebody Muslim does something wrong. Um, like that's that's only fair. And if we you know if we don't do our share, we can't expect the other side to do its share um, the same way. And I think we also have to realize like the Jewish community in Canada is a young community, but compared to the Muslim community in Canada, it is a somewhat mature community. Um, You know, Muslim leaders will say candidly, like they look to the Jewish community uh, in terms of the way it's organized, the way it supports itself, the way, you know, the way it reaches out. Um, They don't have the budgets for that now. They don't have the, the ground, really the ground troops for that now either. But like, in terms of looking for a model, like for a model, a lot of a lot of people in the Muslim community look at Jews and say, like, they figured it out. They figured there's an immigrant community. They came here. They support their own. They built amazing things. Why can't we do that ourselves? And, you know, and, and that that's a, a, you know, that's a time thing and a maturity thing as much as anything as communities and immigrant, especially immigrant communities mature. Hopefully they figure these things out. For sure. Um, yeah. And uh, like I said, I hope it doesn't derail things too hard or too long. But uh, yeah. And we get to our number one most read story on the CGN for the year. And I'm actually not that surprised by it. Um, And it is Florida condo collapse has Jewish Canadian. Oh, man, that was a real tragedy. Um, What an awful, what a truly awful story. And I, you know, and I remember when it, um, when the building collapsed and uh, finding out relatively quickly from people who know the Florida Jewish community that this is an area where there are a lot of Canadians um, and just sort of like realizing that, yeah, there are going to be Canadians who are, who are dead in this and we're going to have to cover that. Um, there isn't a ton more to say on that story, although, you know, there was an interesting uh, furthering of it in the Globe and Mail in the last couple of weeks talking about some, some of the people who built the building uh, and their um, somewhat shady, somewhat shady lives. I don't think there's any implication that. Wait, are you saying the Canadian Jews involved in real estate are doing things? <laughs> well, that's the perfect? thing. Like, so Excuse in this story, me. there Wait. there are no implications <laughs> in the story that you know that the developers or even the builders were were to blame. Um, certainly not the people who put up the money to to develop the place. But yeah, I mean, I think any time where there 
but but you know anytime when there's like um a jewish connection to something bad happening you're like kind of cringing and hoping something bad doesn't come out you know uh, uh, robin doolittle who wrote the story um uh, about the developer um in the last couple of weeks she had reached out to the cjn looking for some old pictures um i don't think they ever ran actually but like it's you know when when i came to understand that other media outlets were looking at the story you start to wonder like are they going to find something super shady that a jewish person did and like make everybody look bad i don't think i think they might have tried to do that but uh you know i, I don't think there was anything in the piece that really yeah. that. to be fair not in an anti-semitic way they weren't trying to make the jews look bad they were just trying yeah, to yeah to- totally totally I, I think they just ultimately <laughs> failed to do that yeah either because it wasn't there or because it was well hidden. I just, uh, right. what, what I'm always scared by is these people who go and say, oh, these people are just looking for ways to make Jews look bad. And I'm like, if Jews don't want to look bad, they should stop doing bad things. Yeah. And I don't think that that was the case in this spe- specific situation. It's just, like I said, it was a, the Canadian Jewish connections were much more tragic than nefarious. Um, but it was a story that really gripped um, our nation, really, for uh, for quite a while because there were so many Canadians there, and, and the recovery uh, and the you know and the recovery project itself was was severely hampered. Like it took yeah. them it took them weeks to get through everything because of all this structural unsoundness around yeah. them. So what were some of the stories, um, now that we've covered all the stories that people most read, what were some of the stories that were remarkable to you in that they should have been much bigger stories, but they didn't even crack this list? You know, I think the biggest story of the year is obviously COVID and how people are, are responding to it. And, you know, I think we did a a fair job of covering it for, uh, within the community from a, from a health and medical perspective. Uh, and frankly, you know, at... Uh, not every, we don't really want to talk about it all the time, and I, I don't think anybody does. Yeah, I don't think there's anything new to say, which is what's really interesting. You know, I'm as I alluded to in the opener, right? I I'm coming off a of quarantine. I was fairly careful. I don't think I did anything different over the past two weeks than I did over the past twenty months, and yet. I caught COVID. I probably caught the Omicron. It came on very quickly. It came on, it was gone fairly quickly. And my whole family now has it. We're stuck at home, but it's not that big a deal. And I think that that's a story that will be interesting to track in 2022 to see how much um, of the Jewish community is going to have caught it over the, the next, this past month and the next month or two um, and how quickly it's going to spread and but how quickly it's going to die away also because this is a fairly mild strain but it's also very virulent and also you know gonna potentially give us some sort of immunity towards the future. Yeah, yeah. I mean look in Israel they're already testing fourth shots now right so uh, and yeah. we'll, we'll be getting ours soon enough. But, but you know, but speaking of Israel, a, a story that didn't make the top 15, but was incredibly interesting was the, the election in Israel this year would finally unseating Bibi Netanyahu and uh, Naftali Bennett take over. And the Canadian election didn't even make it. That's either. right. Well, I was going to say the Canadian election next. Um, you know, I, I could I can understand maybe why the Canadian election didn't make it because nothing really happened. But the Israeli election was like pretty monumental. Uh, you had a guy who's been there, you know, been like the, the kingpin forever, like uh, a master politician, a master at survival, uh, finally deposed. And like and his replacement is this young guy wearing a little kippa on the back of his head, pictured, you know, 
davening or with his tefillin on in the morning. I imagine, I imagine he doesn't get people on his on the plane asking him, "Excuse me, are you Jewish? Can I ask you something?" Yeah, for sure. He, he, uh, but you know, but maybe some of the places he goes, who knows? Who knows? I, I, I think, um, you know, Bennett, Bennett definitely got like the benefit of the doubt early on. He probably is still getting it because, like, he hasn't really done a ton to change things, like. You know, just as an example, like the situation at the Kotel, the the lack of egalitarian space, like, I think he just nicks that one again. So, like, that's just, like, more of the Netanyahu playbook. I don't think really anything has changed in the West Bank or Gaza. The, well, the major change seems to be happening is that the the this compulsory army service and various other things of the Haredi community have always assumed are going to be protections. And the biggest one is the kosher um right. certifications and and that that's gone out the window in terms of like Haredi like control right. of that 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 is that story does have like massive ramifications and it'll be really interesting um you know just and of course because Canada has its own fights with Canadian kosher certifications sure. so we should be able to track that and say hey what's going on with that yeah I mean Bennett's an interesting guy like um I've met him once or twice and like he's he's well spoken I think he could see like I think you could, if you looked at him like five or 10 years ago, you could see he was going to be a prime minister someday. Uh, and he's had his like ups and downs for sure. He was like, he was almost uh, completely out of politics like two elections ago. Um, but he's definitely getting the benefit of the doubt and I think some leeway. I don't know that anybody uh, who is expecting things to change significantly on like either the Palestinian front or um, the like the Kotel front or even some of the issues with racism within uh, Israel. Um, I don't think any of that's happening pretty quickly, but uh, the Abraham, the Abraham Accords um, and the continuing continued growing of the Abraham Accords this year is a big story. Um, it, it's a, it, it's a big story for everybody. And I, I don't think anybody's really covered it well enough, partially because of the politics of covering that story. Um, but look, here's like, it's, fa it's really fascinating seeing, uh, democratic Israel making allyships with less than democratic Arab and Muslim lands and like flourishing in some ways and people going to Abu Dhabi and putting pictures on their social media. Like that is, um, that might be the oh most God, inspiring the thing people that have been posted about Dubai over the past month on my various feeds has been really fascinating. And I've always wanted to go to Dubai and here's my shot and uh, I'll make it happen somehow. Yeah, for you sure. Know, maybe we should do a, a CJN sponsored reportage of Avi Feinwell going for two weeks. To they even Dubai have kosher food there now. What? Not only do they have kosher food, they have like six kosher restaurants. <laughs> the uh, My favorite is, and I was, because I was researching this in August when I was like, hey, I have time to go and travel and it didn't end up working. Um, but I was like, apparently there's a the Armani restaurant in the Burj Khalifa. So this is like yeah. high something or other, whatever you want to call it, fancy and schmancy, is certified kosher. Nice. I could eat there. So like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I could eat there too. Um, we should do a whole thing on not just who are the uh, Jews that are diplomats in in that, the region, but who what who are the Jewish community there? Um, because the, the the rabbi of the Emirates is that's a Canadian right. Jew, and uh, maybe maybe that's something that we should uh, finally cover and uh, look at and see what's going on with Canada and Judaism in the uh, in, in the Fertile Crescent, as we say. Well, I mean, like I th look, I think, uh, and you know, maybe this is a nice way to sort of cap it off, but. 
Um, Canadian Jews do really interesting things. They do really interesting things in Toronto and Montreal. Uh, they do like interesting things in Israel and around the world. And they do super interesting things in their own little communities outside of Toronto and Montreal and Vancouver and, and Winnipeg. There's Jewish life um, bursting across this country in places that um, certainly I wouldn't have expected it to be based on my Toronto-centric upbringing. But it's happening, and like uh, probably at a, at a at a rate that it, it hasn't happened in a long time since um, you know since the early Jewish immigrants came and settled uh, on land in Saskatchewan. But like there are Jews uh, living in every place in Canada. They're finding ways to connect uh, these days, mostly uh, digitally. But um, hopefully that you know that grows when when it can, and like. As crazy as 2021 has been and 2020 before that, like, I'm optimistic heading into 2022. I don't know where we'll be pandemic wise. I, I have, you know, I, I, the only the only lesson I've really been able to take is like, you got to take it a minute at a time, or a day at a time, there are peaks and there are valleys and you're going to have both of them. But I'm optimistic and, and I still think like, um, you know, even though there is a kind of like a young leadership vacuum in the Jewish community, I think the pandemic itself has um, has energized a new group of people. And some of them are involved in the CJN and some of them are doing their own things. But like there are people now, there are young people who are doing their own things, building their own companies, building their own brands. And they're either ready now or getting very close to being ready to take on major Jewish community roles in Canada and abroad. And uh, I think, you know, I've seen a lot of them develop over the last two years. And I'm excited for what they can do. And I, and I really hope that there will be a place for more young leadership to make real decisions because it's going to be, uh, it's going to be their world. And as a community and as a world, we've got a lot of pretty big decisions to be making right now. For sure. And uh, it's actually one of the things that I noticed the most about Moshur Chai in general and something that it's been heartening and really remarkable to see is random P Canadians who message me from across the world, whether it's in Israel or elsewhere or, you know, South America. And I've had messages from Europe, from all sorts of places and tell me, hey, this is really cool that I get to be connected to Canadian Jewry. Um, in this way, I love the podcast and uh, I love the CJN in general. And, you know, the move to online means that you don't have to worry about getting your print, you know, CJN in the mail every Wednesday or Thursday. Um, this has been a really great boon for Canadian Jews to be able to say that I'm Jewish, I'm Canadian, even though I live wherever it is that I'm living, and that that identity is bolstered and underscored. And so what better message than that to be able to say, you know, thank you to everybody that's been listening to this. Thank you to all these stories, to the makers of these stories for good or for bad. And uh, yeah. thank you to the listeners of these stories. And uh, we hope to be continuing this for quite a long time to come. Absolutely. Uh, to you and to your co-host and to your former co-host uh, who's moved on to politics this year. Um, um, I'm looking forward to seeing how how uh, your show and all the other CJN shows and all everything we're doing, the magazines and our news stories and videos and events, like how it all sort of evolves. I think that's part of the that's that's the really interesting part 
And uh, we should keep evolving in as many ways as we can. All right. Well, thanks so much for for chatting. And uh, hopefully we'll get you on before the last week of, you know, 2022. Um, But in the meantime, um, you know, this has been great and it's been fun. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I I really love the conversation. I'm glad we could do it before school starts again, because I'm pretty sure my kids are going to be at home. Same here. Um, So got in under the wire, but uh, it might be a little bit of a tough start to 2022. But uh, uh, like I said, I'm I'm looking, I'm looking forward. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the year ending Friday, December 31st, Shabbat Va'era. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production is by Andre Goulet. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our new page at the cjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do leave us a comment and a rating on the platform of your choice. It really helps us a lot. And as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at the cjn.ca. On behalf of Yoni Goldstein, I am Avi Feingold. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.